Hi everyone, welcome to STEPS audio channel. We are very excited to share our content from STEPS events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech, and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Enagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content. My story is really simple. I was in graduate school in Santa Barbara, California in the late 90s studying fashion and portrait photography because it was a great way to um, meet women. And I had absolutely no intention of doing any of this. And with 18 credits to go, I lost my financial aid. And the government sent me a letter that said, your parents make too much money, we're taking away your financial aid. I sent the government a letter that said, my parents do make too much money, but they keep it. And the government didn't find that funny, and I moved back to New York, where I was born and raised. Um, I need to know if there's anyone under 30 here. Okay, some of the shit I'm going to talk about is going to make any sense to you whatsoever. I moved back into my parents' basement, and I was hanging out in something called the Melrose Place TV Gossip Chat Room on America Online. I know you don't understand that, but imagine, imagine Twitter, but it wasn't a phone. It was a box on the floor that had a line going to a wall. But anyway, so long story short, hanging out in this chat room, someone said, my company's trying to build a newsroom. You have a journalism degree from Boston University. Why don't you send your resume? I did. I said, that's perfect. I have no experience. I learned that sarcasm doesn't translate online. And I was hired as one of two founding editors of the newsroom in America Online. And for those who are old enough, I'm, I just turned 50 this year. For those who are in my age group, you understand that back in the 90s, America Online was the internet. Okay, when you walked into a Starbucks, you just got coffee. There was no Wi-Fi. So you wanted to get online, you went through us. And we had an amazing three years at AOL. And the lesson we learned there was that if customers, if members didn't stay online and enjoy the stuff we were making, we had to make different stuff. Because back then, it was $2.95 an hour. The internet was not always free. It was $2.95 an hour, and our job was simple. Keep our members online as long as possible. And so that was the, my first job and the only job I ever had. And I learned that if you're not listening to your audience from day one, they're going to go somewhere else. 30 years later, Jesus Christ, 30 years later, holy shit. Yeah, it almost, it's 28 years later since I started. Wow, that's depressing. Um, nothing has changed except for the fact that it's gotten easier for your customers to leave. It's gotten easier for your audience to go somewhere else. And that is ridiculously important because if you do not service them, they'll go somewhere else and they'll do it in 10 seconds. So what does that mean? I left AOL after about three years. I moved to... Um, Where'd I move? I moved to, um, back to New York City. I was consulting. I had this idea that I wanted to uh, start a PR firm. It was the late 90s. I did. I had no money. I started a PR firm um, with the idea that I could help dot-com companies. Within two years, um, it blew up. I had literally no money in the bank. I spent every penny I had to start it. Um, and in two years, we were repping companies like Napster and Juno and America Online and all these dot-coms that needed us. And I sold the agency and decided to go out on my own and just consult. The one thing that I do a lot of, for those who don't know, I have massive ADHD. I wrote, I've written several books, but I wrote a New York Times bestseller a few years ago called Faster Than Normal, which is the concept that neurodiversity or ADHD, any sort of different brain, is a gift, not a curse. And um, we could talk more about that. I have a kid's book coming out on the same subject next week. But um, because I have ADHD, I talk to everyone. If you're on a plane next to me, if you're sitting next to me on a plane, unless you fake your own death, I'm going to know everything about you. 
by the time we land. And only two people uh, in my 25 years have, have ever faked their death. But the, the cool thing about that is that that's given me a Rolodex of vast proportions. A Rolodex is like Outlook, but it had cards and you'd turn it. Okay, so I spent all my time building this Rolodex because I talked to everyone. And reporters would call me. They'd be like, hey, Peter, you talk to everyone. I'm doing a story on blah, blah, blah. Who do you know? And the underlying principle that I was born and raised with is just try to be nice. It doesn't cost anything. And you never know where it's going to get you. So a reporter would call me. Peter, hey, I'm doing a story on whatever. Who do you know? I'm like, oh, yeah, call this guy. I met him on a flight to Detroit last year. Or call this guy. Or my ex-girlfriend's a psychologist. Call her. Whatever. And reporters started calling me on a regular basis asking for my help to get them sources. And I figured there had to be a better way to do this because it was starting to take up my entire day, every day. And so I built an email newsletter, a little website. Sign up, and every time a reporter sends me a query, I'll send it to you. Anyone know what that became? Help a reporter out. Yeah, I created a website called Help a Reporter Out, which was an email newsletter that went out three times a day. It still does. Three times a day to about a million people. Um, I was sending, by the time I sold the company in 2010, I was sending out three million emails a day with a 79% open rate on each send. Because the one day you didn't open my email, the Wall Street Journal was doing a story on your industry and you missed it. So you had no choice but to open my email. It was my company called Help a Reporter Out or Harrow was acquired by PR Newswire three years after I started it for a game-changing sum that sort of changed my life. Um, it blew me out of what's called renter's lock. In New York City, if you're doing okay, you can rent a really nice apartment with really awesome views, but you're paying so much for it that you can't ever afford to put money down to buy anything. And that's called renter's lock. And so selling the company allowed me to blow out a renter's lock, and I, I own a place in the city now. But it was one of those things where I spent the next year after I sold the company trying to figure out why in three years I was able to start and, 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 and sell this company for millions because I have no business experience. My business experience was basically stuff I'd picked up along the way. And I whittled it down to four basic rules, and they all involve customer experience. And in a post-COVID world, it's even more important than it's ever been. So I'm quickly going to go through those four rules and give you a little story that goes with each rule, and hopefully you'll laugh, and then I'm out of here. That's it, literally. I'm, I'm a single dad of a nine-year-old who's very pissed that she's not here with me. I took her to Dubai last summer. I figured if I take her in the summer, she'll hate it because it'll be super hot and she'll never want to go again. All she wants to do is freaking move here. I was like, I can't believe you're going. You're the worst father. I'm like, I just gave you $100 in Robux because I felt bad. Well, that wasn't a lot. I used them already. Anyone have kids? It's, it's no longer about cash. It's about the Robux. Whoever created Robux, I want to shake their hand and then beat the shit out of them. So um, long story short, the four rules that I learned while running Help a Reporter that created this ridiculous company that's still going very strong today are as follows. The first rule is the concept of transparency. We are a society, no matter what country you're from, that expects to be lied to. Can I ask, show of hands, who flew here? Keep your hands up if you had a good flight. Anyone? What made it a good flight? Ability to sleep. Anyone else have a good flight? What made it a good flight? Huh? You got upgraded. Okay. So essentially, you took off on time, you landed on time, right? You got the seat you wanted, you got upgraded in that case. Okay. Um, for future reference, the technical term for what you experienced is just called a flight. The reason your hand shot up like a rocket when I said who had a good flight 
is because that's not what you expected. Notice that everyone else's hands shot down because you didn't have a good flight. What you expected was to get to the airport three hours early, you're going through security, it's fine, it's fine, and then they get to you and for whatever reason you don't look kosher. Okay, you're sus. Now you're being pulled into a small little room. You come in an hour later, a little less dignity than when you went in. Now you have 30 minutes to make your flight, packing up your suitcase again, but it's okay. You're at gate four. It's right there. It says so on your ticket. Go to gate four. No, no, no. They moved your flight to gate 278, which is actually four airports and six states that way. So now you're running across the airport, luggage dragging behind you. You've had six mini strokes. You get to the gate. The plane's still there. But that seat, that 4A upgrade, well, you weren't there half an hour in advance. They gave that away. Now you're in seat 37 bathroom. You're surrounded in a middle seat, very, two very large men on either side of you, and there's a blue liquid running from the toilet behind you down the aisle. That's your next 8, 10, 12 hours. So the fact that you had the seat you wanted, the flight took off on time, landed on time, you didn't crash into the side of a mountain, you're over the damn moon about what an incredible flight that was. That's where the bar is. So I'm sitting here giving you these four rules and what to do. And guess what? I don't need you to be awesome when you're running your startup, when you're running your company. I don't need you to be amazing. I need you, hear me now, to suck slightly less than everyone else. Because the bar for customer experience is so low. And I would have put a million dollars on it improving during COVID. Because every single company in the world had a massive reset chance. They had a chance to reset and do everything differently and put their focus on the customer and make it better and not one goddamn company did it. So the bar, if, if it's even possible, got lower during COVID. So all I need you to do is be slightly better. The first way to do that is transparency. Why? Because we expect to be lied to. Okay, we expect not to be told the truth. If that's what we expect, and when there is a problem, because here's the fact, you're gonna screw up. You're going to piss off a customer. You're going to ruin it. That's what we do. We're human beings. There's about 8 billion of us. That's, we have cookies. If you screw up and get in front of the problem, not only do you fix it for the customer, but that customer then becomes 2.4 times more likely not only to stay with your business, but to bring additional people to it. Because everyone wants to be the person who has a guy. Okay, I get, I have a guy who gets me concert tickets. Okay, when I'm, you know, Instagramming my seventh row concert tickets from where, whatever show I'm seeing, probably something in the 80s where I feel old. Oh my God, how'd you get those tickets? Oh, I have a guy, I'll give you his name. Fix the problem for the customer, get in front of it, talk to the customer, explain what it is. That customer now has a one-on-one -on -one relationship with you and is 2.4 times more likely to stay with you and bring friends. Let's face it. No one believes how great you are if you're the one who has to tell them. But if someone they trust does, that is a level of trust that only comes with a personal relationship to the customer. How many of you get those emails after every flight or after every interaction with the company? Tell us how we did, right? We all get those, right? Okay, problem is they usually come from an email address that says, do not reply or we'll kill your children at united.com. But we care about what you say. So I am a very loyal frequent flyer on United. Pre-COVID, I was doing about 300,000 miles a year, and I'm getting back up to that again. And after every flight, I'm one of their like, top, I'm one of the people that like, doesn't just go visit grandma once a year, right? After every flight, I get an email, dear Peter, tell us how we did. And it's always 
a text, you know, one through 10, one through 10, one through 10 for, you know, a Qualcomm score or whatever. The last line of the survey, every single time is the same. It's an open-ended text box that says, tell us how we can make your next flight even better. I did an experiment from 2017 to 2019. 274 flights in a row. In a row, I responded to every survey with the same thing. 10, perfect flight, 10, perfect flight, 10. And that open text box, on my next flight, please refer to me as Peter, Lord of the Skies. Okay. Now here's the thing. I never expected them to do that. But you know what would have been nice? After 274 emails where I said the exact same thing in every single survey, what would have been awesome was a phone call from someone in their marketing, or even an email from someone in their marketing team. Hi, is this Peter Shankman? Yeah, okay. Asshole, we're never going to do that. Stop it. That's all it would have taken to let me know they were what? Listening, exactly. And they weren't. Because let's, let's think about for a second, with all I travel for them, and as much money as, 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 as I spend going around the world to give these talks, do you think, what happens if I have one, two, three bad flights in a row, and I tweet about it, or I post about it, or I share it? You don't think other airlines know who other airlines' top flyers are, who their biggest revenue producers are? You don't think American Airlines follows me, or Virgin, or, or Emirates, or whatever? You don't think Delta is going to reply, hey, Peter, we saw you had three bad flights with United. You know, you could fly out of LaGuardia, too, where we're hubbed instead of Newark. Um, we'll send a car for you. We'll match your status. We have drugs. It doesn't matter. There is absolutely no reason that Delta would not reach out and try to steal me because United opened a door simply by not responding. All it would have taken to guarantee customer experience for life with them was just a response, hey, you know, you're really funny. You don't have to keep doing it. We're, we're never going to call you Peter Lord of the Skies. Stop being an idiot. That's all it would have taken. Fast forward to early 2020, in January 2020, I'm doing a keynote in Florida. Um, uh, this is before Florida went, went super uh, crazy. And I was doing a keynote on um, customer experience for a travel industry show. And I told the story. And I get back to the airport. I think it was in Orlando. I get back to Orlando International. I'm about to board the flight. And you know, I board first, and I pop my ticket in, and I start walking down the aisle, and I hear, excuse me, Mr. Shankman, can you please come back? If, if, if anyone ever asks you to come back the jet, through the jetway, you're going to jail, right? So I'm like walking back with my hands up. I'm like, I, ha I have nothing. I'm good. I get back to the front. It's like, excuse me, Mr. Shankman, are you um, Peter, Lord of the Skies? Someone heard it and made the change. But here's the thing. It shouldn't have taken 274 reviews or 274 surveys, and my speaking in public at a conference for it to happen. It didn't have to happen at all, but they could have acknowledged it. That's transparency. Be open, be honest. When you screw up, own it. Keep the customers you have. They'll bring you the customers you want. Rule two is the basic premise of relevance. What is relevance? So if you don't know how your audience likes to receive their information, you need to do better at finding out. If you Google me, one of the fun things you'll find is that I get arrested in Central Park one morning for exercising before Central Park opened. I've lived in New York all my life. I'm a born and raised New York City kid, public school kid. I had no idea you could close Central Park. Okay, it's like you close nature. You can't do that. And sure enough, I'm doing a, a long run. I was doing a triathlon. I was training for an Ironman. It was 10 a.m. or 4 a.m. and I'm doing a 10-mile run 
Cop pulls me over. He goes, what are you doing? It's the middle of February. I'm in black spandex. I'm sweating my ass off and I'm lumbering around Central. My fat ass lumbering around Central. I'm trading sexual favors for crack, sir. What do you think? Of Turns out that's never a good thing to say to a cop in any city probably. So I get arrested and, um, you know, they don't, they don't hold me that the captain lets me go. It's like this ridiculous. But I have a field day with it. And I, the, the headline in the Daily News, of course, I called the Daily News. Headline Daily News the next day I read, no running from this ticket. But my point is, what am I doing when I'm running in Central Park at 4 a.m. in the morning other than apparently breathing too heavy for the cops liking? I'm listening to podcasts. I'm listening to newscasts that have automatically downloaded because relevant to me, that's how I like to get my information. I don't have time to read the newspaper. I'm not going to stop and, and, and get my info in any other way. I get my info in a way that's relevant to me every single morning. And the news stations or the podcasts or whatever that are relevant to me that can get me the information the way I want it are the ones who win. Those are the ones who I listen to. How do you know how your audience likes to get their information? Hear me out on this, guys. Ask them. It has never been easier to ask your audience how they like to get their information. Reach out to them. Respond to them. How are they bringing it? It's good to have the data points of, oh, this person's on this phone and doing this and spending 54 I swear to you, that's all good, but just talk to them. Start a conversation with them. When I was running Help a Reporter Out, sending out 3 million emails a day, I would ask every Friday, the last Friday of every month, I would ask my audience a simple yes or no question or a one question survey. Hey, we're thinking about doing this or this. Which one would you guys like to see? Maybe a thousand people would respond. I would spend all weekend with my staff. I'd buy them pizza and alcohol and we'd spend all weekend responding personally to every single person who responded to us. Saying, hey, guess what? We're actually gonna do it. And we'd, we'd word the question so 99% of them would, would give us the answer that we were gonna do anyway. And so we'd respond to those 99%. Hey, just FYI, we're doing that thing that you wanted. So check in on Monday. You'll see. Sure enough. Holy shit, Peter Shanker responded. They did it. They used my idea. It wasn't your idea, but if you want to think so, that's fine. That created invested audience members, invested customers. Invested audience members are 1.5 times more likely to stay and not leave when they have a problem, which goes back to transparency where they're 2.4 times like, more likely to stay and bring other people. Create invested customers. And the way to do it is not sending a, a, uh, a survey that says, tell us how we did on a scale of 110. It's talking to your audience. And if you don't believe me, I am a skydiver in my spare time. And no, I have not jumped the palm because I don't have a D license. I'm not good enough yet. I only have 485 jumps. You need 500 jumps and a D license. And I'm not bitter about that at all. But... In my jumping, a friend of mine several years ago uh, was killed by a, in a base jump, and her um, uh, husband asked us to send a donation to this animal shelter that she uh, worked with. So we sent the donation. I sent the donation. <clears throat> this is probably 2006. And about four months later, I get a coffee table book in the mail, a big, hardbound coffee table book to thank me for my donation. And I looked at it. I looked at it like once, right? And I threw it in a corner. This is 2006. I, wasn't, I was living in an apartment. I don't think I owned a coffee table. Threw it in the corner. And I was like, how much of my donation, every day I'd see this, right? I mean, how much of my donation did it cost to produce mail and, and create this, this coffee table that I'm never going to look at? And so I, I call their, I get their head of giving on the phone. I'm like, why wouldn't you just send me an email with like links that I could share with people like to help donate? Well, sir, most of our, our donors are older. And as such, we, you know, they prefer to donate online. I'm like, yeah, fair enough. You've done your research. No, sir, we're just assuming that. So I got really pissed off and I joined their board. And we spent the next year interviewing every current and past donor that had ever donated money to this, this nonprofit, this animal society, 91% of the people we interviewed said they would prefer to get information about the sanctuary online. 
So we started a Facebook group. We started a Twitter account. We started a MySpace page. This is 2006. The MySpace page. We started a Flickr account. Remember Flickr? All these different things. In the following 12 months, donations went up 37%, and they saved over $500,000 US on printing, mailing, and reproduction. <clears throat> go to your VCs, go to your angels, and say, hey, we increased revenue by 37% and saved a half a million dollars. They're going to be very, very happy with you. Listen to your audience. That's rule two. Rule three is the concept of brevity. Brevity is very simple. We all know mobile is the future. In the United States, and a copy of my latest book, if to, to anyone who can answer this question, in the United States, two things, in the United States around the year 2000 or so, 2001, two things taught us that our phones could do more than just make calls in the United States. What were the two things that happened in our world that taught us in, in America that our phones could do more than just make calls, that shifted that power? Huh? No, that was 2006, earlier than that. That taught us our phones could make things like text messages and all those things before, before smartphones. Huh? Close, close. The two major events were 9-11 and American Idol. Okay, 9-11, everyone had a text. American Idol, uh, the first episode, you had Ryan Seacrest saying, text your vote to 47474. And what happened then, that's all he said, and no one understood what that meant, so 785,000 people in the United States picked up their cell phone, typed 47474, hit send, shouted Kelly Clarkson, and crashed every cell phone carrier in the country. <clears throat> if you go and Google the second episode of American Idol, um, it's Ryan Seacrest who, under, penal, under, under threat of lawsuit, had to spend the first five minutes giving people a primer on how to send text messages. But the first thing was 9-11. I was third for takeoff on the runway at Newark on a United flight heading to the West Coast when the first tower was hit. All my parents knew at that time was their only child was on a plane leaving out of Newark around that time. All I knew was both my parents were NYU professors a half a mile from ground zero. I couldn't get through to them. They couldn't get through to me. An hour and a half later, I was finally, or two hours later, I was finally able to send a text message to my father's phone that read, not my plane. That turned my parents into text into textures. It's 20-something years later, and, and they're the grandchild of, or the grandparents of my, of my daughter, and I can't get them to stop texting me. No, it's not funny. But the reason I bring that up is because my parents, they don't use 99% of the apps they have, but they use texting, and they follow me to see what I'm doing on the apps. Where is your audience coming from? understand where your audience is getting their information, how they're utilizing that information, and what devices they're on, where it's coming from, and how they're using it. Become better communicators, and this is key. 2.7 seconds is roughly how long in today's economy you have to reach an audience that you've never talked to before. On average, a person is approached 18,000 times a day and ask for their information, whether digitally, in person, a sign on the side of the road, 18,000 times a day. It equates to roughly 2.7 seconds that you have to reach that audience member. How do you do it? Become better communicators. If you have 2.7 seconds, I don't want to see an email that starts off with dear, colon, first name, if no first name, comma, hello, comma, colon. Get it right. If you can't do it, hire people that can. Do you have any idea how many journalists are out of work who would gladly rewrite all of your copy and do it 10 times better than you ever could really, really cheaply? A lot. 
I don't want to see a spelling error. I don't want to see a grammatical error. Look right now, look to your left and look to your right. Okay? One out of every two corporate homepages and one out of every four apps in the United States alone have a spelling or grammatical error on the front page. One of every two and one of every four. Look to your left and look to your right because if it's not them, it's you. I cannot explain to you what the simple act of proofing your stuff and becoming better writers, better speakers, better communicators can do for your business. And it's not only the bad grammar. <sighs> Quick story. I get pitched a lot. I'm a contributor to CNN. I get pitched a lot on ideas and stories. And my favorite one of all time happened about five years ago, um, right, right around Mother's Day in the United States. Dear Peter, we understand that working moms like you have it tough. I'll let that sink in for a second. It doesn't matter what you do. I don't care if you have an app. I don't care if you have the next uh, fintech idea. I don't care if you run a baby socialization service. In New York City, there's something called uh, Kidville. It's where all the parents bring their six-month-old kids, and from what I can tell, you pay money to drop them in a ball pit and leave them there for an hour. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but I never understood it. So, of course, single dad here was a little worried about doing that. I bring my kid. They seem they take her nicely. They gently place her in the ball pit. I go away for an hour. I come back. She seems to have all her fingers, all her toes. I'm like, okay, she enjoyed it. I'll bring her again. My daughter has a very unique name. Her name is Jessa. I get an email that evening from Kidville. Dear Mr. Shankman, want to thank you so much for the privilege of watching Jessica today. My daughter's name is not Jessica. My daughter's name is Jessa. To quote the meme that I'm sure you've all seen, you had one effing job. Now, I, now it's 9 p.m. I have to go into her room, wake my daughter, and make sure you gave me the right damn kid. All you had to do is... So I go back, and here's the best part. I go back there. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you know what that must have been? We use Outlook, and it probably auto-corrected Jessica. Jessica and I'm like, look deep in both of my eyes and see if you see give a damn anywhere in them. You got my daughter's name wrong. You literally, your job is to take care of my daughter, and if you don't know her name, that's probably a problem. Become better communicators. I had a professor at Boston University who said, be brilliant at the basics and the rest will always go your way. One out of every two home pages, one out of every four main pages on apps. Bad spelling, bad grammar. Guys, it's not that hard. That's rule three. Rule four is how I wrap everything up. Rule four, they keep giving me more time. Like, literally, it said five minutes and then they moved to eight minutes. So apparently I'm filler, which is cool. Um, that's the beauty of someone with ADHD. If, if I didn't have a clock, it would be like next Tuesday and I'd still be here. You'd all be like close to death. So, oh yeah, you, you think I'm kidding. I, I have had this keynote in my calendar for three months um, today at this time. And when did I show up and, and, and find our MC and say, I'm ready? 24 hours ago. Walked in and said, I'm ready. He's like, oh, you're here to watch? I'm like, no, I got a keynote at 1220. He's like, yeah, tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to go walk around Dubai now. So rule four is the concept of top of mind. There was a gentleman, I'll give a copy of my book to anyone who knows this answer. There was, the first, there was a gentleman who was the first head of Paramount, he was the head of Paramount Pictures in the 70s, and he turned Paramount around. Anyone know his name? A guy named Barry Diller. Barry Diller was an agent at, I think, UTE or one of the, one of the big um, talent agencies when he was offered this job in the 70s to, to run Paramount. And everyone told him, don't do it. Paramount's in trouble. They're two seconds from bankruptcy. 
Uh, don't do it. You're going to regret it. Well, he went there anyway, and he did two things differently. He got in the office an hour before everyone else. Never underestimate the power of getting in the office an hour before everyone else will change your life. Second thing he did was he reached out to everyone in his role. He kept two Rolodex on his desk, one full, one empty. And he'd pull 10 cards every day out of the full one, call 10 people in the Rolodex just to say hi. He wasn't selling them. He wasn't pitching them for money. He wasn't asking for something. He was just saying hi. Hey, it's Barry Diller in New York. What are you working on? Hey, it's Barry Diller in LA. What's the, what's the weather like in New York? What's going on in London? What are you doing in, 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 in wherever? How can I help you? The five most underutilized words in the English language. How can I help you? Think about the last 10 emails you've gotten on LinkedIn. And tell me, you, before you leave, tell me those last 10 emails on LinkedIn weren't people asking you for help. Hey, I'm looking for a new job. Hey, do you know anyone who I can connect with? How many of them ever reached out to you and asked you, what can I help you with? Flip the script. Instead of asking for help, offer it. And you will succeed. Barry Diller was in Paramount Pictures from 1976 to 19, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 1976 to 1987. During his tenure, he was responsible for such films as Flashdance, Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, Officer and a Gentleman, Three Men and a Baby, Top Gun. The list goes on and on. He took Paramount from the first, from two seconds from bankruptcy to the first billion dollar studio in the world, let alone Hollywood, simply by reaching out and asking how he could help. Here's the thing. He was doing it with a, a, a Rolodex and a rotary phone. Never mind. How do you... How do you make it through a day? Don't you feel shamed thinking, oh my God, I have all this, all I have to do is go on LinkedIn and just randomly grab 10 people. It's so much easier for us to do it now, yet none of us do it. I guarantee you, woman walking out right now, she's never gonna do it. But it's so simple. All you have to do is reach out. Hey, what's going on? Set up Google alerts on people's names, people you want to contact. Set up Google alerts names. Hey, I saw you were in the New York Times. You did the thing. Congratulations. Next time you're in New York, let me buy you a beer. Then, when you have something to sell, you're not cold reaching and saying, hey, I haven't spoken to you in 10 years, but I need something. Barry didn't ask for anything. He offered. Flip the switch. That's top of mind. When someone wanted a picture greenlit or wanted an actor signed to a five-picture deal or wanted a, a movie funded, they could have gone to 20th Century Fox or Warner Brothers, or they could have just called Barry back. Barry was top of mind. What can you do to reach out to people in your network every day to be top of mind. Because here's the thing, guys. Your network is only as strong as the weakest connection in it. And so if you're reaching out to people, I literally got one this morning. Peter, hi, I haven't spoken to you forever. So I've been laid off. I'm like, right, but you haven't spoken to me forever. So I have no idea what you do. And I guarantee you, if you weren't laid off, I wouldn't be hearing from you. Why? Reach out when you have nothing to sell just to say hi and ask how you can help. That will magnet magnanimously flip the switch. The difference between asking when you have nothing to sell and offering when you have nothing to sell versus asking when you need something is night and day. Finally, I'll leave you with one story. And this is one of my favorites. Um, so I, <laughs> I usually speak for an hour and I have like 40 stories. So you guys are lucky. You're only going to get one more. Um, I was flying home from a meeting in 2010 or 2011, I remember, I was training for my first Ironman and I was flying home after a, a day trip to Florida for a meeting and I was starving. I didn't want to eat plain food because it's terrible and fattening, whatever. I jokingly sent a tweet 
to a restaurant called Morton's Steakhouse. They're a chain in the US. And I sent a tweet saying, hey, Morton's, guys, I'm really starving. Why don't you meet me when I land at Newark with a porterhouse? Ha <laughs> The same way you'd tweet, hey, winter, please stop snowing. And I took off and landed a few hours later and didn't think anything of it. And I found my driver. And standing next to my driver was a guy in a tuxedo carrying a Morton's bag. Morton's had seen the tweet, figured out the closest Morton's restaurant to the airport, and dispatched a waiter with a porterhouse, a baked potato, and I think some colossal shrimp. And of course, it, I, you know, I took pictures of it, and I wrote a blog post about it. And two days later, Morton's was on the Today Show. Their revenue was up, in double dig up to double digits, up by double digits that year, <clears throat> all from the stump. But here's the thing. While that's a great story, if Morton's didn't have the basics down to begin with, it would have blown up in their face and destroyed them. What do I mean by that? Well, millions of people wound up reading about the greatest customer service story ever told, as they, as they phrased it, right? Um, I mean, Twitter mentioned it in their top 10 list of, of, of greatest tweets, which really tells you a lot about Twitter's algorithms. But point being, let's say you saw that story and you tell your husband or your boyfriend, hey, let's go to Morton's. Look at that great story. They must, they must be amazing. Make a reservation. You get there. You reservation for 8 o'clock. They don't seat you till 8.45, right? 20 more minutes till the waitress comes over. Screws up your drink. Your steak is cold. You ever going to go back? Now you're doubly pissed off because not only did you have a horrible experience, I'm sure, they give Peter a steak at the airport. They can't even get my damn drink right. Morton's is brilliant at the basics. When you make a reservation, they ask you one simple question. Are you celebrating anything? Oh, yeah, it's my girlfriend's birthday. Oh, great. What's your name? Her name's Gabriella. Great. We'll see you and Gabriella Friday at 8 o'clock. Show up Friday at 8 o'clock. And this is not me. It's anyone who does this. I hope, hope, you know, hopefully you're not going with Gabriella and you're going with your own girlfriend or boyfriend. But you walk into Morton's. Ah, I'm shaming. Yeah, 8 o'clock. Great. Welcome. Well, then you must be Gabriella. Great. Let's sit you down. They sit down. And the menus, instead of the, the regular menus they give, they have printouts on nice paper with the entire menu, except for one difference for the normal menu. On the top of the menu, it says, happy birthday, Gabriella. Cost them nothing to do. But you know what happens next? Gabriella spends the next 45 minutes Instagramming the hell out of that photo. Right? Not paying any attention to me. I, I brought you here. Nope, doesn't matter about me. She has to show the whole world how awesome Morton's is. Who are Gabriella's friends? Women just like Gabriella, all of whom are now turning to their boyfriend and go, how come you never bring me to Morton's? I want to go to Morton's next time. That's how you create invested and loyal fans. The basics. If he leave you with one thing, be brilliant at the basics. Transparency, transparency, relevance, brevity, and top of mind presence. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Anagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch.